Hello, my name is Adam Eason. Welcome to episode 119 of Hypnosis Weekly. Hypnosis friends and a very warm welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Once again in my own highly biased opinion I think I have an incredible show lined up for you today. In a short while I'll be sharing with you this week's interview with my guest Nicola Shoebrook. Then we'll have this week's Hypnosis in the News stories examining the media where hypnosis is... (laughs) I'm trying to keep it going but as you probably know even though I promised Hypnosis in the uh, uh, hypnosis in the news section. I'm going to be ranting again this week, um, I'm, I'm, but we'll then return with our professional discussion with my guest Nicola Shoebrook. Uh, we'll be talking about the importance of all things nutrition when it comes to psychological well-being. We'll round things off with this week's hypnosis evidence-based factoid before I bid you farewell for another week. As I say at the beginning of every hypnosis weekly episode, this podcast is something that I want to encompass a feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate, as well as doing its best to inform and educate. I do not share the same stance as most of our guests and at times have major differences in approach and leaning, but all are incredibly lovely people who I'd happily talk with until late in the pub and all of whom, uh, following their time here on Hypnosis Weekly, I have a great deal of respect for. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback, do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made in the discussions, along with related links, are posted in the episode notes section at iTunes and on each episode's page on the website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. You can add your thoughts, comments or make any suggestions there too. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else to help us reach more of the hypnosis community. It's greatly appreciated. If you enjoy this podcast, then please do go give us a favourable rating, even a review at iTunes. I'll be a BFF if you do. It takes just a couple of seconds and a couple of clicks to give us a favourable rating, and it does us a world of good. Um, so first of all, today is this week's interview with Nicola Shoebrook. Um, Nicola is going to be a speaker at uh, the UK Hypnosis Convention later this year, um, and she's doing some brilliant work out there in the world, not just with her individual clients, but also uh, teaching hypnotherapists and other uh, well-being professionals the importance of nutrition and, and, and the role that it plays upon mental health, um, and which is something we're going to be speaking about later on in the second half of today's show. Um, and, it's, and it's illuminating stuff. Um, she loves her subject is clearly passionate about her work and I'm delighted that she agreed to come on today's show. So let's get on with it shall we? For now get comfy my friends, turn up the volume, sip on your tea. Enjoy this week's interview. So, as I've just been discussing, I'm delighted to welcome this week's guest, the one and only Nicola Shoebrook. Nicola, welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Hi, Adam. Thanks for having me on. So, so you know, let, let's let's learn a little bit about you. Uh, tell us, you know, tell us about your background. Tell us how did you get into this field and how have you arrived at uh, where you are now? Okay. Um, so, my background actually originally was in advertising. Um, so when I left college, I went straight into advertising working with various magazine brands, which was brilliant and I loved it. And I, on the whole, I think I did that for about 18 years. Um, mm. rounds about was well, several years into that career. Uh, obviously there was quite a lot of stress, both just the pressure of working in that kind of industry, but stuff going on yeah. in my personal life. Um, and, um, I didn't have the world's best diet, so there was a lot of caffeine and a lot of alcohol and late nights and things. Um, and I started to experience um, not just anxiety, but panic attacks. And um, then there was this, an, another event that gave me more PTSD. And so all of this was going on and I was um, desperate for, for the panic to stop at the time. And even though I was seeing yeah. a therapist, I just, you know, nothing was working. And I happened to then come across a book that talked about mood and food. And at that point I was like, I'll try anything, you know, and suddenly I realized, you know, perhaps all the alcohol and the caffeine and the cigarettes I was smoking and the late nights and the 
you know, the, the sugar that I was consuming to kind of keep my energy going from the adrenaline of the panic wasn't yeah. actually that conducive to my brain. Um, so that journey really took me through into nutrition, which is, um, I've been qualified 10 years this year. So that's something that's always been at the heart of everything that I do. And on that journey, I, because of my nutrition, um, and I started, um, I do some health journalism and things. I very kind of got sent on a, uh, a retreat to India, this whole detox retreat that was physical, psychological, physiological. And on this retreat, one of the therapists said to me, do you want to try hypnotherapy? And I was like, yeah, sure. I'll give it a go. I've not tried it. Um, and she was like, is there anything that's going to come up? And I was like, no, I don't think so. You know, I was in a kind of good place mentally at this point with, with my panic and things. Yeah. Well, anyway, this one session of hypnotherapy, she got straight to the root of where the panic was, which was an event that happened in my childhood. And I literally walked out there like somebody had switched the light switch on. I was like, oh my God, this all makes sense now. And, and that was it. I was just kind of completely sold on hypnotherapy. So as I kind of finished my media career, I was still doing all my nutrition. Um, and I was obviously working a lot with, with clients with mental health issues because it's a passion for me, you know, working with people with anxiety and panic and brain fog and coping with stress. And I was finding I was referring people on because I obviously have my nutrition background, but I didn't have the hypnotherapy side. So when I decided to finally leave media and, and kind of work for myself full time, I took myself up to, off to, back to college and got my um, hypnotherapy diploma. Um, and so now, yeah, been doing hypnotherapy. Uh, I feel such a newbie in this area, really, but I've only been doing that three years qualified. Um, and obviously my nutrition is is 10 years so now i bring the two together in my um in my private clinic yeah 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 lovely lovely um, um t tell me tell me where you're at as far as hypnosis is concerned um um you know we're gonna we're, we're gonna explore and talk in some detail later on in the show about about your nutrition work and about your, your specialist um, uh, um topic just, just tell me a little bit about where you're at as far as hypnosis is concerned how do you explain it um, um how do you how do you define it you know how do you how do you explain it to, to, to people that, that, that corner you um, in the kitchen at parties? So, <laughs> yeah. um, um, you, you know, t t t tell me a little bit about that. Um, I'm, I'm, I think these days, you know, before I would have, when I first started, I would have gone for something quite clinical in its description. And now I try and make it much more everyday for people. Yeah. Um, I sort of explain to them about it being more a state of mind. So yeah. for me, it's about sort of being present with yourself really um and that obviously through through this more relaxed state of mind all i'm doing is guiding you to be able to sort of allow yourself to sort of connect with yourself more both whether that's addressing something that's happened in the past how things are going at the present or looking at something in the future this yeah. this process of hypnosis you know and then sometimes I sort of sometimes explain to them about we kind of do it every day you know that whole daydreaming that we sometimes do or getting in the car and driving to a destination I try and make it very realistic for them rather than getting deep down into the science of it and just explain about this this relaxed state of mind which allows the work to be done around those those negative thoughts or habits or behaviors that have already happened so you know whilst we can't for example change an event that's happened in the past we can change the emotions attached to it, yeah. but all in this really relaxed, comfortable, sort of safe space, really. Yeah. Um, and that for them normally gets them intrigued because they can relate to it a little bit more. Um, sometimes I explain the, the, the process of going into hypnosis, a bit like um, sort of meditation on speed. Sometimes I've used that expression, <laughs> that whole kind of, you know, we'll see if they've done yoga and they've laid in Shavasana at the end of a yoga session, and where they feel grounded. And I explained that that, you know, through hypnosis, I'm just deepening that process. So yeah. people can relate to it a lot more, sort of, yeah, you sure. know, on the street, so to speak. Sure, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, t t tell me who, you, who your influence is within the field, you know, are there, are there any books and authors that have taught you most of the, are there any teachers that have been the most influential upon you um, um, and why? Do you know what, I think, I was thinking about this question and for me, I draw on so many different resources. Obviously, the guys that I trained with, um, so Taya and Nicola at the Institute of Clinical Hypnosis where I trained, um, I had the great pleasure of sitting next to Roy Hunter at the um, UK Hypnosis Conference last year for dinner. Yeah. 
So spending a whole evening chatting to him uh, was just incredible. Um, I did some training with Melissa Tears off the back of that um, conference last year, which I thought was brilliant. I really pull in from other other therapists, other people that I work with. So I work with quite a few psychotherapists um, and we share clients. So they do the some of the psychotherapy stuff and then I, I might work on some other um, either hypnosis or nutrition stuff with clients. So I really draw on other areas. I, I don't necessarily sit down and go, oh, this is absolutely the book. Um, sure. Because of my nutrition work, I think as well, I, which I'm sure we'll come on to later, I sort of practice um, functional medicine. Um, so for me, I'm, I'm also learning about how the brain's working from a functional medicine point of view as well as a hypnosis point of right, view. And yeah. I really try and bring together podcasts, um, you know, books, etc. I was listening to a podcast only yesterday on um, energy healing um, with a lady called Jill Blakeway and how sort of the connection we have with people so you know if a bit like we do with hypnosis sometimes where we can mimic breath work and we can actually help calm someone down using breath work sure that's that's conveying a certain energy to someone and just by being in a room with them and so then i'm always trying to think well how does that apply you know if i had somebody in hypnosis you know what kind of energies are, are happening um i've certainly experienced um in some of the sessions that i've done there's definitely been emotional connection where I felt some of the emotions that my clients have gone through, um, where I've sensed the, the, the tears or the anger that's come through. So yeah, I kind of draw on, on a whole range of things really into my practice. Sure. 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 It's very, very eclectic. Yes. Um, um, so tell me, tell me, you know, throughout, throughout these recent years, um, um, what, what's been one of the most impressive applications of hypnosis that you've, that you've directly witnessed that you've encountered? Um, apart from on myself back in Goa all those years ago. Yeah, um, yeah, which, sound, you know, which sounds that, immense. It, it was, it really, really was. Um, and, and in fact, I always remember there was another lady there. She was a doctor, actually. She was a GP. And um, I think she went into the session a bit cynical, shall we say. Um, yeah. And she literally walked out and looked a completely different woman. And obviously she didn't go into a great deal of detail about it, but there had been, it turned out some, she's had a difficult childhood with her mother basically. And yeah. she literally walked out and I really, and I sometimes say this to my clients, I get them to look in a mirror before they have the session and then look in the mirror again afterwards because the face changes and this woman's face changed. It, she looked younger, she looked lighter you know, you could just see she was happy and like a whole weight had been lifted. And, and so sometimes I do that with my clients. I get them to look in the mirror before we start, even if it's just working on some stress or anxiety and then show them afterwards when they're suddenly feeling lighter and brighter and, you know, they're smiling at themselves in the mirror. And yeah. that's really powerful stuff. So sometimes it's even just those small changes has such an impact on that person directly. Yeah. Um, so for me, I think it's more in just the, the practical application that, that, that we sort of um, apply in clinic on a daily basis. But certainly yeah. that, yeah, that trip to India was definitely a game changer for me, yeah, that's for yeah, sure. Yeah. I, 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 a lot of guests that I have on the show, um, um, you know, cite this idea that sometimes we run the risk of getting a little bit blasé about how amazing it is what we do each and every day, you know, day in, day out. And that, that, that you know, we may, we may pick out um, um, a big kind of, kind of, pain reduction type of uh, uh, individual that we worked with or something like that or something that we saw in a classroom or a demonstration that we uh, were involved with yet the work that we're doing um, um, day in day out is is, is immense and, and, and can be very awe-inspiring in and of itself and and, and we, we mustn't go around normalizing that too much I think mm, um, yeah <coughs> so if if you could go back if you go back to when to when you started out as as a hypnotherapist, as a, as a oh. hypnosis professional, knowing what you know now, is there anything that you do differently? And if so, what? And is there is there any advice that the person that you are today would give that that that, that slightly younger you? Uh, and would you extend that advice to to our listeners? Uh, I think I think one of the biggest things that I can, I would go back and tell myself now is is that you don't have to fix people in one session. I yeah. think I think because of my experience in when I'd first had hypnotherapy was such such a game changer for me that you know i was lucky enough that i that one session was it but i think i then went off to train 
and thought, oh, my God, I've got to fix everyone in one session. Amazing. How powerful is this going to be? They're all going to experience it like I experienced it. And, of course, when that didn't always happen, it wasn't that it wasn't working, but that, it, you know, some clients, it didn't resolve itself in one session. I think I was probably quite hard on myself at the time thinking, oh, I failed, you know, kind of and lost my confidence a little bit because of that. Um, yeah. Because I think sometimes we think, you know, as you say, we, we and we see it. We see some, you know, other other peers in our in our groups and things. Um, and I've I've witnessed some of the the pain relief work that um, Freddie does and things. And you think, wow, this is fantastic. They are making changes in one session. But I think my my novice self back then really put pressure on myself. And um, kind of yeah, now I'm that's... a bit kinder with myself when I when it doesn't all get resolved in one session. Yeah, 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 and, and quite right because. You know, I, I think that's a that, that's a huge burden to bear. And, and mm. I would also say, you know, I, I know there are I know there are some exceptions, um, um, but but I would also say that you know, typically the evidence does tend to suggest that that, that more than a single session is is better for for the vast majority of of, of issues that, that that typically we deal with. I think it's probably unrealistic for for hypnotherapists and 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 unhealthy for hypnotherapists to go around putting that that kind of burden of responsibility on their own shoulders um, um, and, and so on. You know, I, I, I would consider that to be to be excellent advice. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that, you know, that as you say there are cases where it does work in one session and it's brilliant. But, you know, I always, I always explain to my clients, we're, we're like an onion and, you know, we start taking off one layer and there's another layer underneath. And then yeah. we take off another layer and something else might come up. And, and so it isn't always just this, you know, get from A to B. It's a bit more of a roller coaster of a journey sometimes, depending on what the issues are that, that you're dealing with. So part of my work that I do a lot on is with eating disorders. So, you know, they are complex. They are complex conditions to be dealing with. There is no way that is going to be resolved in one issue, in one um, no. session rather. So No. And I, I would say that we, you know, we, we probably run run the risk of, of being rather unethical or unprofessional to, to ever suggest that, that, that we can that we could resolve something as complex as yeah. that um, in a single in a single session. Um, um, now um, we're, we're going to be we're going to speak in some in some detail about about your specialist areas as I said earlier on um, mm. um, in a short while. Um, for now, where can people go to learn more about you, your work, your approach, and everything else? Absolutely. So um, my I have I have two websites. Uh, my sort of um, private kind of clinic work um is under my business urban wellness so that's um urbanwellness.co.uk um and then i have a facebook page and insta sort of that that supports that but then um i also have my more um public profile page shall we say um which is just nicholashubrook.co.uk um because i as well as kind of um i do journalism i do uh public speaking and guest speaking I do corporate events uh, and I run some workshops as well so I kind of have kept the two a bit separate so as not to confuse people as to you know are they coming to me for a session or sure. are they trying to find out where I'm where I'm speaking yeah. so yeah, yeah openwellness.co.uk or nicholashubrook.co.uk great great and there will be uh, our links to to both those websites over at this episode's page of the hypnosis uh, weekly website as well as in uh, the episode notes at, at itunes and stitcher um, um so stay tuned we're going to be back with nicola uh, um, discussing her subject uh in a, in a few minutes time <music> I enjoyed that. We'll have more from Nicola shortly. Um, next week, um, our usual hypnosis in the news section will return. I know I promised that last week. Um, um, but I had something pressing that I wanted to speak to you about this week out. You know, um, um, because last weekend, um, I spoke at the annual conference of the NCH, the National Council for Hypnotherapists. Um, and I spoke on some subjects that I believe are necessary for raising standards in the field. And um, so some of the delegates um, that were there um, um, began to debate some of the some of the points, some of the, 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 the issues that I raised um, um, online and and uh, discussion ensued in response and some of the some of the comments incensed me if i'm honest and compelled me to 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 record a video on on some of the things and 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 i thought i'd speak on the subject here as well um let me let me explain the point first um, um about about kind of undue influence and then i'll return to my own specifics you know 
So back in 1938, Orson Welles um, caused a bit of a stir with his realistic radio broadcast of War of the Worlds, which was dramatised and adapted to depict a Martian invasion of Earth. And um, I'm updating H.G. Wells' 19th century science fiction novel, War of the Worlds for National Radio. Um, Orson Welles probably did not suspect the ensuing havoc. Um, Sunday evenings in the 1930s, you know, this was this was prime time in the golden age of radio. Millions of Americans had their radios turned on um, and many missed the introduction of the play um, due to a very popular ventriloquist being being over on another channel at the same time. And many of those that were tuning in late heard the announcer um, um, take listeners to the Meridian Room in the Hotel Park Plaza in downtown New York, where you'll be entertained by the music of Ramon Raquello and his orchestra. And the music played, and then the, the frightening stuff began. An announcer broke in to report that um, Professor Farrell of Mount Jennings Observatory had detected explosions on the planet Mars. And this was followed by another interruption in which listeners were informed that a large meteor had crashed into a farmer's field in Grover's Mills in New Jersey. And... Soon, an announcer was then at the crash site, describing a, a Martian emerging from this large metallic cylinder. Um, and he really went into details, um, 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 you know, this kind of serpent-like um, 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 drama that he was talking about. And um, um, then it moved on to, to say that, 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 that there were more Martians that were now mounting um, these kind of walking war machines and firing heat ray weapons at puny humans that were gathered around the crash site. And that these Martians had then annihilated a force of 7,000 National Guardsmen. And after being attacked by artillery and bombers, the Martians then released this poisonous gas into the air. And that there were these similar Martian cylinders landing in Chicago and St. Louis. And the radio play was extremely realistic, with Wells employing sophisticated sound effects um, for the day. And his actors were doing this excellent job portraying terrified announcers and other characters. One announcer reported that widespread panic had broken out in the vicinity of the landing sites, with thousands desperately trying to flee. And in fact, that was not very far from the actual truth, from reality. Because thousands and thousands of radio listeners believed that a real Martian invasion was underway. You know, um, panic broke out across the country. In New Jersey, terrified civilians were jamming uh, the motorways, you know, seeking to escape the alien marauders. People were begging police for gas masks to save them from the toxic gas and, and were asking the electric companies to turn off the power so the Martians wouldn't see their lights. Um, one woman even ran into an Indianapolis church uh, where evening services were being held and yelled, New York has been destroyed. It's the end of the world. Go home and prepare to die. Um, and it's a major contender for the use of the expression, well, that escalated quickly. Um, you can Google it and you can explore the story and read about the accounts of people whose, whose neighbours were banging on their doors, telling them to flee for their lives. Um, and these people had their reality created for them by radio. Um, and many believe that the masses were, were primed for such as the current political climate um, was created by being, you know, in between two world wars. And there are other contributing factors for sure. Yet people's reality was created by radio and was then further constructed by the response of the people um, and by the, by the reactions of panic. Um, 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 that was going on around them. They were influenced by, by other people um, and, and, and a kind of hysteria was created. Um, more recent than that, um, an episode of Pokemon, one particular episode has only ever been shown a single time and it was never rebroadcast. The episode was entitled Deno Shenchi Porygon, um, translated as Cyber Soldier Porygon. And it was the 38th ever episode. Um, those of you with foil hats may be making some vague conspiracy connection with uh, the Orson Welles event happening in 1938. But I assure you this is a fluke. Um, this episode of Pokemon is famous. Well, it, it, it's infamous for using certain visual effects which supposedly induced photosensitive epileptic seizures in a large number of its Japanese viewing audience. 
685 viewers were admitted to hospital. If you go and read the article at the website of the Skeptical Inquirer, for example, you'll see that not all scientists and experts consulted believed that mass um, um, epileptic seizures really happened as the media terrifyingly portrayed it. Um, and many have since explained it as mass hysteria. You know, many of the Pokemon-induced symptoms reported, such as headaches and dizziness and vomiting, are less typical of seizures than of mass hysteria. Conversely, symptoms that are associated with seizures, such as drawling, stiffness and tongue biting, were not found in any of these Pokemon victims. Um, three other symptoms, such as convulsions, fainting and nausea, that were common to Pokemon victims are associated with both seizures and mass hysteria. Um... um, um the, the incidence of photosensitive epilepsy is estimated at 1 in 5,000. Um, and such an incidence, which is actually 0.02% of the population, comes no way near explaining the sheer number of children that were affected. In some cases, nearly 7% of the viewers, um, according to some reports. And this is not to say that um, some children did not endure seizures, but clearly the vast majority of the children didn't. Now, stress frequently plays an important role in cases of mass hysteria, and Japanese youths are, are under tremendous academic and social pressures to achieve. Japanese schools in particular are known as high-stress generating institutions, and students with low or even mediocre grades have been known to commit suicide, sadly. Um, the week the episode aired, many Japanese youths were preparing for high school entrance exams and therefore already under added pressure. Extraordinary stress by itself cannot and does not trigger epidemic hysteria. But another aspect of Japanese culture, however, may contribute to the mass hysteria, and that is the, the compulsion to conform. Now, Bob Riel in 1996 um, was a manager at a Boston-based cross-cultural training firm, and, and, and he puts it this way. One of the most important traits of the Japanese mindset is its collective nature. In Japan, we comes before I, a concept that's taught early on. Unlike Western children who are taught to be independent self-thinkers, Japanese children are educated in a way that stresses interdependence and reliance on others. Many Japanese habits and customs stem from this desire to maintain the group. And this type of collective social order makes a fertile ground for contagion. Um, there are so many similar examples to these types of events, and I'm touching on these two, um, whereby the absolute reality, you know, to the extent of mass panic and real physiological responses of people, you know, was created by populism, by media, by expectations, by attitudes, and whereby the consciousness of individuals has been dominated to the point that, that people are not really thinking or feeling for themselves. Now, some of you that are listening to this may think, pa, you'd never catch me responding in such historical fashion to cartoons or radio broadcasts. But can you be sure? You know, are you contributing to what's currently trending on social media flat platforms, for example? You know, I'm, I'm here at home. Currently, we have furore about Brexit. We have furore over the current Conservative Party leadership contest. As a result, many of my Facebook and Twitter friends express opinions and thoughts on the matter. Um, you know, I... I do from time to time. I've publicly shown my disdain for some of the things that are being portrayed in the media, but also expressed some disgust with the media's readiness to lap up some of the controversy. Other topics that, that, that trend on social media platforms, you know, the, the, the ending, the recent ending of the Game of Thrones series, you know, debates that are caused by other TV dramas, you know, who's guilty of murder in the latest edition of the most popular soaps, who's getting it on on Love Island, you know, people are commenting, debating, discussing in reaction to what's happening in the media or on social networks. Um, and within professional fields, you know, people react to and, and, and you know, create echo chains very often you know that their, their confirmation bias means that they very often hang around with and, and in groups with people they feel safe around that confirm a lot of what they already know and it does beg the question you know are we thinking for ourselves and as hypnotherapists are we thinking for ourselves what I wanted to illustrate here is just how much 
Your own stream of awareness, your own levels of consciousness are dictated and created by others. How capable we all are of having our consciousness consumed by media, by the opinions of peers and professional peers and, and peers that we put up on a pedestal and people with strong opinions and lots of charisma. For many of us, you know, it's, it's not a major problem. But how many of us can claim to have or to be having genuinely individual thoughts and claim to be directing our consciousness independently, orchestrating our own direction in life each day? You know, just go look at the proliferation of memes in your Facebook newsfeed or your Twitter feed or on Instagram for starters. And go take a look at the types of things your peers, your colleagues, your friends, your families share on these platforms. Notice your own contributions, you know. Are you, are you running in parallel with that? You know, are you really thinking for yourself? And it brings me back to my opening point then, you know, someone online mentioned that instead of the sort of science that I expect the field of hypnotherapy to be more aware of in order to progress, it was suggested that we should get more therapists to record their therapeutic outcomes. Um, and I'm all for that, but it has major limitations and I worry about its accuracy and, 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 and the way that so much bias and undue influence is, 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 is contained within that. We need more science to understand the mechanisms which make our work effective and to isolate variables and to examine our subject robustly. The laboratory is not the same as the clinical environment. I absolutely concur with that. But the scientific findings from the laboratory can then be used to inform and influence our work and our practices in a really good ethical professional way. But you see, what got me riled was the utter echo chamber that this thread and the ensuing comments became. Um, and as with so many threads discussing hypnosis, you know, people were blindly following and agreeing without engaging much of their own thought, it was seen. And, and on a very rare occasion for me, I decided to, to weigh in and, and decided to really stand up. And it was amazing how many people, when I was just... Um, um, when I started to, to join in and stand up, then started to be swayed um, um, so, so simply and so easily. But this was one of the main points at my presentation at the NCH conference that I'm talking about, that we need more critical thinking in this field. We need more experimental science and a deeper understanding that comes with innovative thought. We don't need people who are incessant echoes, perpetuating lazy thinking. You know, I choose to speak out. I choose to research areas that are not previously investigated. I choose to pioneer um, and, 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 and as much as possible to be a voice and firmly believe that in order to progress this field we need more voices and less echoes. Um, but I do promise our hypnosis in the news section will return next episode, I promise. So um, 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 next up, yeah I used the word promise twice in one sentence there, okay so I, I, I've got to be firm. Um, we have this week's professional discussion next. Um, I welcome back um, Nicholas Shoebrook. We're talking all things nutrition as well as hypnotherapy today. And this, um, um, Nicholas shares why she dislikes hypnotherapists saying that they can cure depression. She talks about nutrition, psychiatry and functional medicine. And I think you'll find much to enjoy and much, of, um, um, much that is stimulating in this discussion. Here is this week's professional discussion with Nicholas Shoebrook. Enjoy. So uh, we're, we're joined, uh, I'm joined once again by this week's guest, uh, Nicholas Shoebrook. Um, this week we're going to be talking about Nicholas' specialist area um, and she's really kind of blazing a trail out there in the world um, at the moment with regards to, to the, the, the way in which um, um, she, she, she's working with nutrition um, um, and, 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 and helping, helping well heck, she refers to functional medicine which I really love the idea of and I'm going to be asking her to explain that in a little while. So, 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 Nicola, welcome back. Um, um, at the beginning of, of our interview earlier on, you spoke about your own kind of journey, which had led you into nutrition. Was was that was that how your interest then developed in this area professionally? Yeah, absolutely. Um, although, admittedly, you know, when I when I first came across this, this book, it was called um, "The Mood Cure" by Julia Ross. Uh, it's quite an old book now, but um, when I first came across this book, she was somebody who was dealing with addicts quite a lot um, and was finding that they were following these 12-step programs and things, but relapsing yeah. 
And that's when she realized that nutrition was an important component of that. So when I went off to college, it was literally just for me. Quite selfishly, I was like, I just want to learn more. I want to know how to look after my health, my brain, etc. And within months of of kind of embarking on the on my three year diploma, there I was like, this, you know, it it just kind of all made sense. It was like, this is such a fundamental fundamental part of our health that that journey has then just obviously led me led me to where I am now. Um, with a particular interest, obviously, in in both gut health and mental health, because the, because and this connection between the gut and the brain, yeah. the, both the physical link, but also the psychological link as well. Yeah. And that's really sitting right at the heart of, of everything I'm doing now. Because you know, if you're only treating one, in my opinion, you're you're kind of doing half the job. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Which I find fascinating. So so. Um, just tell me then, t- tell me about your approach, you know, t- 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 tell me what is it, what, what, what do you do in your work? Okay, um, I've meant to say, I'll, I'll touch on the functional medicine thing, because that kind of yeah, underpins sort of where I'm at. So, um, functional medicine is quite a new word here in the UK. It's, it's um, so I'm a, member, I'm a member of the Institute for Functional Medicine, which is a US um, based organization, but it's it's global now. Um, sometimes it's called lifestyle medicine. Effectively, it's about getting to the root cause of what's going on. As I say, it's always what's the why. Why is so? If somebody comes to you with a migraine and wants pain relief, for example, with hypnotherapy, I if a client was coming to me with a migraine, I'd be going, okay, well we can do the pain relief work, but why have you got the migraine? What is causing it? Is it an emotional block? Is it or is it a food intolerance? Or is there environmental toxins going on? Is the gut not working properly? So I'm always looking at why are we presenting with something? Because, again, as part of my journey, I think through nutrition, but also trying to resolve my panic attacks before the hypnotherapy session that I had, um, I really believe that the body speaks to the mind, Mm. um, that it presents. Every time we get a physical symptom, it's your body trying to tell you something or there's something going on emotionally because... As I explained to my clients, you know, we, if I think about my own panic attacks, the thought would be what caused the panic. You know, whatever that thought was, that would be enough to trigger a full blown physical reaction in my body. Yeah. Cold sweats, feeling faint, um, chronic diarrhea, nausea, you know, adrenaline, heart pumping. They were an absolute full on physical reaction to a thought. Mm. No different to when we, you know, we might cry at a sad movie or something. Um, yeah. The thought is, oh my God, that's really sad, but the physical reaction is tears. So yeah. I really, in all of my clients, and, and some of my clients come to me directly with nutrition in mind first because um, perhaps they've got chronic gut issues going on or they've been diagnosed with depression and they know that actually, you know, nutrition can help in some shape or form but normally and then I, I often weave the hypnotherapy and if I feel it's relevant it's not a fait accompli obviously if you come and see me that you have to do one or the other yeah. or some people come to me for hypnotherapy for anxiety for example but I'll always be checking in on what are you eating how well are you sleeping how well are you moving um, and also looking increasingly at um, the gut microbiome so all of our good bacteria in our gut because we know that there are links between certain the lack of certain species in our gut and links with anxiety and depression so i'm kind of treating that person as a whole and ultimately getting down to why why have they got anxiety why have they got depression why have they got ibs etc and um, and then using obviously the various tools accordingly um for that client yeah yeah, yeah. So I, I, I'm kind of I, I'm kind of getting a sense that there's that 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 that, that, that this sort of creates a, a sort of philosophy that you adhere to. Um, and would I be correct in in assuming that? Yeah, yeah. I think I think you would be actually. Um, it's it's again probably from my nutrition and and increasingly my functional medicine background. Um, it's we are all individual. Every yeah. single one of us. And even, um, you know, just taking diet, there was a research that came out just last week um, that has demonstrated that food and weight is not influenced by our genes. And they even did the test on identical twins and yeah. found that identical twins react differently to the same foods. 
And if you take our gut microbiome, so our good bacteria, or even you know some of the more bad bacteria, so to speak, that 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 we can all get in our guts, it's like a fingerprint. Every yeah. single one of us has a different gut. We know people in the Western world have very different guts to the, in the in countries like Africa. And again, identical twins are born with different microbiomes. So every single person that comes into my clinic space, even if it's just for hypnotherapy and anxiety, it's not a, oh, here's a script, I'll just read this out. You know, no. it's about understanding why specifically has that person got anxiety, how is it presenting, and therefore what do we need to do to... To, to correct it what what's their why why has yeah. this started yeah 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 uh, um, which i find very interesting um um and so um, um are you able to share with us some of the some of the kind of key features some of the key features some of the key key approaches to the, to the way in which you work i understand that that's probably a very difficult question to ask um, um for, to, to answer rather given the fact that you've spoken about you know obviously treating everybody very individually and finding and and understanding um, um, um the, the, the cause as, as you've been describing and um, i'm mean, explaining much better than i'm paraphrasing um, um but but yeah uh, are, are there some some kind of key or typical features um, of your approach um yeah there probably is so every single client that that comes to see me every new client I always um, have a, a longer initial session with them so rather than just oh, booking somebody in for an hour whether you're coming to me for hypnotherapy or you're coming to me for nutrition um, I will always spend uh, an hour and a half with that client um, I'll probably get them to complete a food diary because obviously I'm taking into account the nutrition stuff yeah, right. filling out a few questionnaires and things for me to get ascertain kind of where their health is at at the moment, however, and through that process, as well as understanding, you know, what their presenting complaint is, understanding what their diet and their lifestyle is around that as well, so that I can help influence those things, um, as well as obviously, you know, if, if somebody's come to me for hypnotherapy, so for example, I've got somebody coming in uh, just next week, actually, who's um, a fussy eater, cannot even look at a vegetable without feeling nauseous. Um, but he's found some interesting research around something to do with taste buds. So, and he sent me through these links and, you know, he's kind of questioning, well, how do I know if it's a thought process that I, I don't know, let's, I'm not saying this has happened to, to, to them, but maybe there was an event when they were a child and I've seen it before in people where perhaps they've been forced to eat certain foods, um, you know, because either a parent has worked hard and said they can't get down till they've cleared their plate or any of the sort of emotional stuff we get told as a child, or has is there something physically going on for him that has altered his taste buds? Right, yeah. You know, so, um, so yeah, so I'm really spending an hour and a half with them in that first session, and I'm, I map out their health history. Yeah. So I literally, from, from the day they were born to now, I'm looking at all of the incidences um, and I see it so much, and even in my clients with, with IBS, which obviously is, is a really common thing that we can treat with hypnotherapy. But yeah. when I start asking when it started, you know, university is a big thing for a lot of people. The stress of the exams plus the change in, you know, the diet at uni, lots more yeah, and pr carbohydrates. Probably some, some poor lifestyle choices. Yeah, exactly, which is part of being at uni. But the impact it then has on them, um, that any stress trigger then sort of flares the IBS for them. So, it, you know, sometimes I go back to that. Well, it all started here. It all started, whilst you've got IBS now, it all started when you're at uni. Or um, I've got, I'm just trying to think of another client. I've got the minute who's got um, autoimmune arthritis mm -hmm. and he's in a lot of pain because yeah. his joints are all flared. So, you know, yes, there's stuff I can do around pain management for his joints, but he's got an autoimmune condition. So mm. I'm going, what on earth is his immune system doing and his digestive system doing? And when did all this start? Because at the moment he's retired and he eats all organic and, you know, probably some of his diet sometimes healthier than mine when I looked at his food diary. Um, but when I look back at his history, the stress he had in his 20s was huge. Mm. And that was some 20 years ago. But then you go, well, was that the cascade that set him up for the arthritis now? Because those kind of chronic diseases, you don't just wake up one day and you've got it it's normally taken a 10 to 20 year process to evolve where the body yeah. just unwinds and then kind of hits hits rock bottom. So again, he's the perfect example of someone where I 
am understanding why the arthritis has started. I know that there's a genetic potential component for him because it runs in the family as well as the diet and lifestyle. So the hypnotherapy will work great on the pain, but I need to support his immune system. I need to almost put the fires out because I know that he's running in a state of inflammation. So that's kind of really how, I guess it's probably the best way, hopefully for me to have explained how I bring the two together in, yeah. in my practice with my clients. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's really interesting. And, and, and it, it leads, me, leads me really nicely on to um, um, the next question. I'm, I'm hoping some people that are tuned in are listening to this um, um, have a similar line of inquiry. You know, when we were off air, you and I were just speaking and I mentioned that, that obviously, you know, as far as national occupational standards go for, for training for, for hypnotherapists, um, um, we have to know and work within our sphere of professional competence. Now, now you have ha have have you know a decade of of experience as a nutritionist. You have you know it, 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 done a huge amount of education as well as professional work um, 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 and are qualified as a nutritionist. And and uh, you know typically you know the vast majority of hypnotherapists won't have that and won't therefore be in a position to necessarily give. To, to, to give that, that kind of advice um, um, or, or give instruction as far as nutritionally, nutritionally is concerned. Can you tell me a little bit, you know, first of all, how people go in the kind of direction that you went in, in order to, to be able to give both sets of advice, or, um, 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 you know, do you recommend therefore that they, they, they develop their referral system and, and get in contact and work alongside other nutritionists and so on? You, you know, d d just give me, give me some ideas and, and some, some thoughts and, and and what it is that you do in this regard. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I agree with you. Obviously, I'm not um, suggesting for one minute that every single hypnotherapist now needs to go out and train to be a nutritional therapist. Yeah. Um, although, you know, we need more of us. So if you are interested in it, I'd, I'd recommend it. Um, I mean, there's a lot of information out there. Uh, and, you know, you can buy books on various things. And I just think, you know, even just learning some basic information around nutrition, not only is going to support you but support your clients around just you know simple things like balancing blood sugars which may not mean much to, to some people listening to this but um effectively i mean actually this is something that i saw a real gap in um in this area because you know i was seeing i see on various sort of facebook posts or sort of um you know people sort of promoting what they can help what hypno help hypnotherapy can help with yeah. Um, and as I think I was saying to you uh, in the break, um, one of my biggest bugbears that I have is when I see P hypnotherapists using, uh, through advertising or whatever means, that they can cure a certain condition. Yeah. So I've seen um, posts um, on for someone saying, oh, I can cure depression. And that really got, got my go and actually ended up me developing my own workshops, which I'll come on to, because... Depression, yes, we know can be caused by trauma, can be caused by an event or a bereavement or something like that. But there is a systemic physiological reaction in the body as a result of depression, PTSD, whatever it might be. The, the way that the body reacts in that fight and flight response to whatever that event was downregulates the digestive system. You're, you know, 95% of serotonin, your, your neuro, one of your key neurotransmitters that is your mm. happy hormone, is made in your gut. So if through that trauma, your gut has, has gone into fight and flight mode, which effectively means that blood flow is moved away from the digestive system because it's, it's pumping it into your, into your muscles in a bid to fight or flee, whatever that, that response mm. is, except obviously we don't, you know, as humans now, we, we're not running away from, from our threats so much. Um, which then reduces the function of the digestive system because there's less blood flow going in, there's less gut bacteria, um, it affects the diversity and the numbers of the gut bacteria. So there's, there's this, and it starts to create a role of inflammation. So then when we're trying to eat food, and also when we tend to be low or tired or stressed, we tend to eat the more sugary foods or we start using alcohol as a, as a bit of a crutch. The body's then not getting enough nutrients in the digestive system's not working properly and therefore the neurotransmitters aren't being made and how on earth are they going to then get back up to the brain to enable the brain to be working at optimal function? Mm. So yes, absolutely, hypnotherapy has an amazing place in helping people overcome trauma 
and and depression but i really think it's quite dangerous when people say we can cure it because if that person is still eating a really crap diet then that depression could easily come back i mean in functional medicine we say leaky gut leaky brain the two are way us with every day we're finding out research around the links between the gut and the brain from a physical science point of view as well as obviously the the emotional state so that kind of in the end actually led me to then start developing my own series of workshops actually um which i um have run a couple of times the next one's in september actually in london um called introduction to nutrition for therapists so i'm not training people to be a nutritional therapist mm-hmm. um as you say ethically that that's not the right thing to do if you want to do that you've, you've got to go off and do the 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 studies but um it's just an overview of what is good nutrition debunking some of the myths that are around there just basic things around proteins and fats and carbs. I talk a lot about the gut microbiome and the impact that stress and mental health has on our gut and vice versa and and really just start to unpick um, some of the basic stuff that anybody, to be honest, could find in a book or searching on the internet or somewhere, but I try and bring it into context within the therapy environment um, so that potentially someone may you know, if you know you've got a client coming in who's eating loads of junk food, they're not exercising, um, they're not sleeping well, and yet they're coming to you with depression or something like IBS, well, the hypnotherapy will work brilliantly on the mental state, but what's the body, you know, if they're still going to carry on with that kind of approach to their diet and their health, yeah, the body's going to keep, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to respond, it's not going to repair as well as we would want it to. So people can either then obviously come to my workshop or um, I would, you know, my dream would be that not even just hypnotherapists, but every psychotherapist, hypnotherapist worked with a nutritional therapist and nutritionist in some capacity. Because yeah. for me, this, this, I mean, it's being termed now um, nutrition psychiatry. Mm. It's a really growing area around the impact of food on moods um, and that we don't necessarily need all the medication that, that we've been using and that if we start correcting what we're eating and how well our body performs as a result of that food, we can start to reverse some of some of all these mental health issues that, that are happening. Um, yeah. You know, there's even, going slightly off, off tangent, but there's even some work in the US. Um, there's an amazing uh, doctor called Dr. Del Bresden who works with Alzheimer's and people who are in early stage Alzheimer's, he's actually getting the Alzheimer's into remission through diet and lifestyle alone. You know, we see it very much as a, we call it diabetes type three uh, Mm. in functional medicine. We're seeing it very much as a diet and lifestyle led condition. Um, And so that's just purely on the impact on that food and lifestyle can have on the brain. And Mm. I I, I genuinely think that as therapists, we need to be aware of all of these other influences as well. And and say, if, if, if you don't want to learn about the nutrition yourself, Go off and find find a nutritional therapist you can work with. Yeah. I, I increasingly work with psychotherapists, um, DBT therapists, um, osteopaths, cranial sacral therapists. I'm always referring and working a network with people because I can't always fix everything as much as much as I think I'd like I could. Yeah. Uh, I can't. Um, but I, I, I love that. I think it's so important that we don't position ourselves as an out and out alternative or a panacea, and that and that we do work. Um, um, in harmony or at, at, in an adjunctive capacity with other professionals. And and also, you know, one of the things I found it really refreshing and, and really lovely to hear the, 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 the you know, that the, the, the psychological side of, of nutrition is, is being met and discussed mm. and worked on as well. Because I think typically a lot of people just think of nutritionists um, um, or dietitians in terms of, you know, reducing their weight, for yeah. example, and getting getting advice on that. Um, um, whereas there is this, this this entire field currently, as, as you are demonstrating, um, um, so amply, uh, that is um, um, that that is talking, you know, nutrition for for mindset and for mood and for um, um, psychological purposes, which is which is lovely and really refreshing to hear. Yeah, it's exciting. You know, say kind of when I picked up that that book however many years ago now, some fifteen years ago, it was just it was like wow, God, never even thought about you know eating some salmon might actually be good for my brain instead of, you know, my, uh, my pret croissant that I used to have for breakfast, perhaps. Um, 
and it's it's it feels to me it feels like it's slow it feels like it's been a slow shift change um i mean i even remember buying um uh, you know coming up with my company name urban wellness uh back in whenever it was uh eight years ago now and people going to me what is wellness what on earth does that mean nobody you know that just wasn't a word that was bantered around and now it's kind of it's everywhere um But yeah, I think, you know, we've still got a long, long way to go. Um, unfortunately, you know, certainly in the UK uh, with the NHS, and the, which is brilliant, don't get me wrong, medicine absolutely has its place. And as nutritional therapists, we work with doctors and medicine. We, we, we're not here to just, you know, get everybody off the drugs. They, they do have their place. But we're still in a, I think here in the UK, we're very much in a state of we wait till we get ill and then we go to the doctor. Yes. There isn't enough preventative health. Or, yeah. or, or I think maybe perhaps we we just assume, oh, it's okay because we've got the NHS. If all else fails, we've got the NHS, which, you know, wonder it's kind of buckling under the pressure of things like dementia and things these days. Um, yeah. Which, again, dementia, the impact that diet and lifestyle can have on preventing dementia. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I think we're, we're getting there. We're getting yeah. there. People are really starting to understand the importance of food on mood. Um, there's a brilliant... Uh, Professor, oh, I'm going to try to remember her name now. Felice Jacker, I think it is, in the in Australia. She's actually got a dedicated uh, food mood institute where she's researching all of this, and it's not dissimilar to me in in her journey that she suffered with anxiety and things, and and realised the impact of food. So it's starting to weave its way through, which yeah. is really exciting. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is, and and. You know, for those for those of you that are that, that are tuned in right now, um, I mean, you want to go and um, um, we'll, we'll have a reminder with regards to where you can go to find out more about Nicola's um, um, workshops in a moment. But also, she's going to be speaking on this subject at the UK Hypnosis Convention um, later on this year. And for those of you listening to this uh, in in 2020, you, you missed it. Uh, uh, so this is I'm, I'm talking about the 2019 UK hypnosis convention mm. um, so N- nicola where can people go to um uh, um to, to learn more about these workshops is that the urban wellness website uh no if you go to nicolashubert.co.uk um right. so there's information on there so the next one's um going to be the 14th of september uh 1990 uh 2019 rather um yes. 2019 um that is in london on the 14th of september and then um i've got another date earmarked um in february up in nottingham um and then actually i'm also guest speaking for those of you who are international uh i'm going to be at the australia hypnobiz conference in march talking about this as well um so and there's there's more in the pipeline which is exciting so i'm doing a lot more sort of speaking and stuff around this subject so yeah lovely 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 well you know i'll very much look forward to seeing you do go those you tuning in do go check out uh check out the workshops check out uh uh, um summer nicola's work um, and all that remains for me to say, Nicola, thank you for being the guest. No, thank you. Uh, this week's guest on the Hypnosis Weekly podcast. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed that. There are links to the sites that Nicola mentioned over at this episode's page of the Hypnosis Weekly website and uh, on the episode notes on iTunes. So next up, we have our evidence-based hypnosis factoid of the week. And the fact of the week is this, and it seems like a little bit of a kind of weak one initially. And that is that varying factors contribute to the willingness of people to try street hypnosis. So this is from um, um, the paper, um, um, is entitled um, Factors That Contribute to the Willingness to Try Street Hypnosis by Davis and Gao um, um, in, in 2014. And this particular study took a context-specific approach to examine people's willingness to try hypnosis under various conditions and the factors that contribute to their willingness. And it examined participants who completed a web-based hypnosis survey, um, just under 400 people. Um, um, And the results showed that people's willingness to try hypnosis does vary by context. Um, Specifically, people are more willing to try hypnosis when it is framed as peak focus rather than hypnosis and when they perceive the environment as being safer. (coughs) Um, Moreover, factors including participants' demographics, the hypnotist's demographics, certainly in relation to the subjects, 
um, um, participants' control bias and knowledge of hypnosis all seem to affect people's degrees of willingness to try hypnosis, um, um, depending upon the specific context. Um, and there's lots of, lots of really interesting things within that. But the results suggest further analysis of hypnosis occurring in public contexts and the effects that it may have on attitudes and therapeutic outcomes um, um, is, is, is due. Um, there's a link to the research paper included on this episode's page of the Hypnosis Weekly website. And um, as always, if you follow me on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram, you can find masses of memes relating to a variety of study whereby hypnosis has been examined. Um, that's it for this week's 119th edition. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I've got many more exciting guests that I'll welcome to Hypnosis Weekly in coming editions. Um, we'll be discussing, debating, celebrating, and above all, remaining friends. Um, next episode, I'll be welcoming Tracy Grist, uh, the current chairperson of the UK's largest not-for-profit hypnotherapy association, the NCH, the National Council of Hypnotherapists. And uh, we talk about a lot of different things that I think you're going to love. And we laugh a lot. Um, all the references made in the discussions, along with related links, are posted at each episode on the Hypnosis Weekly website, www.hypnosis-weekly.com. I absolutely welcome your thoughts, comments, suggestions and questions, so do please message me or add them on the Hypnosis Weekly website. I'll make sure that they get addressed, answered and explored accordingly. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else. Really help us reach the hypnosis field. My thanks again go to Nicola Shoebrook. My thanks to you for tuning in. My name is Adam Eason. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, goodbye for now. 